as we are jumping into Revelation chapter 17, we are in our series that we called Apocalypse Now. We've been walking through the book of Revelation one chapter at a time. We started back in January. We took a break for the summer. If all my hopes and dreams come true, which doesn't always happen, uh, we will be wrapping this up in the next four or five weeks. Uh, we are coming into the home stretch of Revelation, and so uh, our plan is to do that. We will see if that plan comes to pass, but we have been going through Revelation and talking about the history of it and getting into some of the symbolism of it. Ultimately, our goal in Revelation has not been, hey, we're going to master this book. We're going to figure it out once and for all, although we've joked about that a lot. But really, our goal has been, you know what, we're going to be okay with the mystery of it. We're going to engage in the mystery of it. Our real question is, what is the Spirit saying to the church through this text as we've gone through it bit by bit? If you've missed any of the messages, they're all available online. You can catch up there. And fair warning today, I've been dreading this chapter the whole series. And so fair warning, if there are kids here in the room or if any kids are watching online, there are some adult themes, shall we say, in the text today. And we're not going to dwell on that or, and certainly won't be graphic with that, but we do need to talk about it because it is in the text. So just fair warning for parents. Uh, I think junior high and younger, this maybe isn't a sermon you might want them to hear or you might want to be ready to answer some questions as you go through it. So we're in Revelation chapter 17. And as we uh, dig into this, this. And in my ministry, um, one of the things that you do is you walk with uh, people who have gone through divorces. And there's all sorts of reasons why that happens and, and a wide range of human experience in there. But when it comes to divorce, there is one thing I think that is fairly universal, not just in the church, but just in the world at large. And that is when there has been infidelity, that is reasonable grounds for divorce. Now, it doesn't have to go that way, and I know couples who have been able to survive an affair, but when there is adultery, when there is infidelity, uh, even the world would say that's a reason for a marriage to end. There is something, there is a violation there, uh, there is a breaking of a vow, there is a breaking of a covenant that, that goes beyond other marital problems, and so that does happen, and, and that is uh, grounds for divorce, it is reasonable. And so throughout Scripture, uh, there are calls, really from beginning to end, it starts at the, the very beginning of the Old Testament and all the way through to the end. There is a constant call to faithfulness in marriage, right? That you, you don't get married quickly or lightly, that you take the vow seriously, that you're making a covenant, not just with the person, but you're making a covenant with God in your marriage. And so we, we want to be faithful, amen? That's not a controversial thing. We're gonna get more controversial before the morning is over, but we're not starting off that way. That faithfulness is good. Faithfulness is godly. And so we are called to faithfulness in our marriage, and there are warnings throughout Scripture of, so don't be uh, allured, right? Don't be seduced by the wife of another man or by, by another person's husband. Don't be seduced away from your commitment. Don't be seduced away from the vow that you've made. And part of what we've seen as we started in Revelation chapter one and went through, that the call of the Spirit to the church throughout Revelation is don't give up. Don't, don't fall away from Jesus. Don't compromise yourself with the world. Don't compromise yourself with other gods. Don't give up on this commitment that you have made. Persevere, church. Keep going even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of difficulty, be faithful. Don't fall away. 
And so as we have gone through, uh, we took a couple of weeks break there for Thanksgiving and we had Phil and Robin Serez down. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Revelation 15 and 16, the last couple of chapters. And in those chapters, those were the chapters of God's final uh, bowls of wrath. Remember that? There were, there were these bowls being poured out on the earth. And the, the message of those two chapters is God is dealing with Babylon once and for all. And we hear at the end of chapter 16 that the city of Babylon in this vision, uh, you know, hailstones fall, there's a crazy earthquake, it splits into three parts, Babylon is destroyed forever. Now, as we go into today's text, Babylon is still around. And so we've talked in Revelation how sometimes there seems to be some time hopping going around. Some stuff seems to be in the future. This is not like a storybook with a beginning, middle, and end. This is an apocalyptic vision. There's a lot of fantasy to it. And so sometimes it seems like we're in the future. Sometimes we're in the past, perhaps. And sometimes, like in this case, what seems to be happening is Revelation 15 and 16 tells this is the destruction of Babylon. And then as we get into Revelation 17, it's like the, the narrative says, says, all right, so Babylon is destroyed. Now we're going to rewind in time a little bit, and we're going to go into a little more detail of how that happened and why that happened. And so let's get into it. Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They will have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings." And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled." The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. How are we doing? 
That, I was going to preach that last Sunday for Thanksgiving Sunday. And if you're wondering, Chris, how are you going to tie the Whore of Babylon into Thanksgiving Sunday? The answer is not well. And so we went a different direction last week. We talked about Thanksgiving. I knew this week was coming uh, nonetheless. And so this is not light and fluffy stuff, obviously. And again, we're not going to master this today, uh, but we are going to talk about just different ways that it can be approached. And then what is the Spirit saying to us in the midst of all of it? So starting in verse 1 again, the seven angels who had the seven bowls. uh, So that's Revelation 15 and 6. If you remember, they had the seven bowls that they poured out on the earth. These were consequences, plagues, and different things. God's anger was being poured out, and we spent a lot of time that day talking about the nature of God's anger. So I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And so whoever this woman is, it has dominated the world. The whole world has been caught up in this thing. The kings, the rulers of the world are caught up with her. The inhabitants of the world are caught up with her and, uh, and is, is envisioned here as a prostitute. And so I, you know, we, it's not a word we like to use, obviously. Um, in artwork, she is displayed certain ways. I had to edit it a little bit because a lot of pictures of this person are not Sunday morning friendly. So there is a picture of her from an artist from uh, the 1800s, and uh, so what the, whatever this woman is representing, she is personified as a prostitute. And she is, you know, very brazen, obviously, uh, you know, wearing red, wearing scarlet. She's glittering with jewels, with gold, and all of these things. And, and in my years of ministry, I have met and, and chatted with prostitutes and prayed with them a few times over the years, not a ton. And some of them were actively in that lifestyle at that time. Some of them, it was in their past. And to actually sit and talk with women who are going through this or have come through it, uh, you, you can only have compassion for them. Like, no little girl dreams of this growing up. No one is, is aspiring to do this one day. But often there is abuse, sexual abuse in their own past. Often there are addictions uh, that are needing to be fueled. Every time there are men involved who are manipulating and, and controlling and making things happen. So it really is a heartbreaking thing uh, to actually encounter. And yet, uh, if you read, for example, in some of the history of Rome, the Roman Empire, there were also those who were very brazen, who were very proud of this. They were beautiful. They were desirable. They decided, I will make my fortune in this. And so it was very, very out in the open, and they would become very wealthy by selling themselves in such a way. And the, the woman being personified here is obviously that. There is a brazenness to it. Uh, she is doing very well in her profession and, and is, is somehow uh, seducing the whole entire world. And when we see these warnings in Scripture, you know, be faithful to your spouse and start there, um, it is not uh, always about prostitutes, that warning, but the warning in general is, hey, don't be seduced, right? Kind of common sense, but don't be seduced. Don't be seduced away from your spouse. Don't be seduced by a prostitute. Don't be seduced by another uh, woman's uh, husband, another man's wife. Don't be seduced along those lines. Don't be drawn away. Don't break your vow. Keep your commitment. Stay faithful. And we've heard that again all through Revelation so far. Stay faithful to Jesus. Don't give up. 
Don't, don't back down, persevere in your faith. You stay faithful to the commitment that you've made. And so in the midst of that charge to continually be faithful, to stay faithful to Jesus, this great seductress, this great temptress figure rises up in the story. Moving on to verse three through five. The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. That's happened already to John in this story. We, say, we saw another woman uh, who probably represented Israel in the wilderness, if you remember a number of chapters ago. So there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, so all signs and trappings of wealth. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. We've seen in Revelation already, God has sealed his people by giving them a mark on their forehead, right? We've also seen the beast has marked people with a mark on their hand or on their forehead. This woman is also marked on her forehead with just her name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And so this woman is, is not just a prostitute, but she is fueling it. She is the mother of prostitutes and all abominations of the earth. That, that, that this is being driven by her and drunk on the blood of God's people. So she is obviously uh, you know, participating in and, and delighting in that God's people are being persecuted, that people are laying down their lives for the name of Jesus in this time. She is after God's church. And so she's riding on a beast. We have seen a description of this beast before back in Revelation chapter 13. We took a, a whole Sunday back in June just to talk about this chapter, uh, the beast out of the sea, uh, often called the Antichrist. If we're looking at Revelation in an end times uh, scenario, uh, we talked that Sunday as well for anyone reading in the first century who were getting this letter, Revelation, for the first time. The beast almost certainly would have been the Roman emperor who was calling for the whole world to worship him, who was persecuting God's people, who was dominating everywhere. And so this beast is, I think, that beast. It's not crystal clear, but the description is very, very similar. So this woman, this prostitute, is riding on this antichrist-like figure that we have taken. There is something about the two that is connected. They are working together. And as this, uh, you know, this temptress is there, and, and as uh, she is being presented as she is, the whole world is getting caught up with her. She is seductive. She is alluring. Uh, there are many who are, are coming to her, apparently. Uh, we are reminded that in Scripture, in Old Testament and New Testament, God often presents himself as husband to his people. So in the Old Testament, God uses the picture of him and Israel as husband and wife, that God is the groom, that Israel is the bride. In the New Testament, it becomes Jesus and the church. Jesus is the groom. We are his bride. And it's, it's not a picture so much of romance as much as it's a picture of commitment, it's a picture of covenant, that just like a husband and wife in, in the natural would make a, a vow to one another, I will be faithful to you forever. I am entering into a contract with you forever. I'm not going to give myself to someone else. That's what God did with Israel, and that's what God has done with his church. And there's language in the Old Testament, especially, where God will talk to Israel, and, and Israel would often uh, find other gods, or they would make political alliances with other nations without seeking the Lord. There were times where they would wander away from the worship of him, and God would use the language of, I feel like a husband who's been cheated on. 
And, and in Ezekiel, we see that. And in other prophets as well, there's, there's quite graphic language in Ezekiel where God says to Israel, like, you've, you've just gone and given your body to somebody else. You've gone and given your heart to somebody else. Like, I, I've been a good husband to you. I've protected you. I've provided for you. And you have gone and given yourself away. And again, the call becomes, come back to your husband. Come back and be faithful. We see this in the prophet Hosea as well, where Hosea is told, marry a woman who's going to cheat on you. And when she cheats on you, you're going to welcome her back in and forgive her. And you're going to be a prophetic sign to all of Israel that that is what you are doing to me, Israel. And yet I will welcome you back, just like Hosea welcomes back his wife. How's that for a call on your life? This is what I want you to do, to be obedient to me. And so God uses this language of faithfulness and cheating and affairs, and, and you were seduced, Israel, and, and you were drawn away, you were lured away by another lover, and you gave yourself away to somebody else. But the call is, no, come back and be faithful to your husband. Come back to your original vow, your covenant, your commitment. Come back and be faithful. And we see the heart of God in these passages, both uh, the heartbreak of a, a cheated-on spouse and the anger of a cheated-on spouse, and yet the grace and compassion to say, hey, come home. Leave them. Leave your other lover. Come home to me. And God just giving that grace back to Israel again. And so uh, for anyone reading this in the first century, I think that's probably where their, their mind would have gone, that, you know, Israel was often seduced. They were drawn away, sometimes to other gods, sometimes to, to political alliances. They would go to Egypt and make an alliance that wasn't of God because they thought Egypt could protect them. They were just, they were looking to things other than the Lord. They were giving themselves away. And so this language comes of don't be seduced, don't cheat, don't break your vow, don't break your covenant. And the same would have been heard in the first century who are reading this. Don't break your covenant, don't do what Israel did, don't be seduced by Babylon, don't be tempted away. And so Babylon is uh, an empire that rose up hundreds of years before Revelation is written. Uh, and, and you can read about it in the Old Testament. But Babylon was a huge, terrifying conquering, dominating empire that was taking over the known world, just, just country by country, nation by nation, king by king, was falling to Babylon. Uh, they worshipped all sorts of gods. They were, they were idolatrous by nature. There was all sorts of immorality going on. They did not follow God's word, God's law. They were incredibly wealthy, and the wealth was built on the backs of, of slavery and conquering and oppression. So there's a lot of blood that went into the luxury. And they were persecuting God's people like crazy. So Babylon invades Israel, uh, takes over Jerusalem, takes the Jewish people, scatters them all over the empire. They burn down the temple. They steal things. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem and leave it in ruins. That was Babylon in the Old Testament. There, there's, no other, there's other empires, but there's no other empire that would have loomed as scary for the Jewish people as Babylon. Now, Babylon is long since over by the time the book of Revelation is being written. Babylon is gone. That empire fell, and then the Persians took over, then that empire fell, and then the Greek empire took over, and then that empire eventually fell, and then the Romans came to power. And the Romans, like Babylon, were a huge, terrifying, conquering empire with lots of idols that they were trying to get the whole world to worship, with lots of immorality going on, and, and they did not hold to much in terms of uh, what God would want for us to live. They were incredibly wealthy. Rome was built on the backs of slaves, and a lot of bloodshed went into that. And they, at the time of Revelation's writing, were persecuting God's people terribly. 
And so for anyone, again, in the first century, reading this book for the first time, when they hear Babylon, they're thinking Rome. They're thinking, we know exactly what they're talking about. We know exactly what Jesus and John are getting at. Babylon is Rome. The exact same type of empire is happening right now. They are pressuring us to worship other gods. There's persecution if we don't do what we're told. All of that is exactly the same. And so Babylon itself was a city that was the the power center for the whole Babylonian empire. And likewise, Rome is a city that was the power center for the whole Roman empire. And we're told, we've told you before in Revelation, There's a lot of mystery in this book. There's a lot of symbolism we don't understand. There's a lot of things that we may not get an answer to in this life. But when it's really important for us to understand the symbolism of something, we just get told, right? They tell us clearly what it is. And that happens at the end of the passage, the last verse, chapter 17, verse 18. The woman you saw, da-da-da-da, is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So we don't have to go, okay, so does she represent some demonic power? No, we don't need to worry about that. Does she represent a literal queen? No, we don't need to worry about that. We're told the woman is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. At one point in the past, that was Babylon, but in the time in which Revelation was being received, it was Rome. And so there's no one in the first century who would have read this and thought anything other than it's Rome. We are talking about Rome. This prostitute, this great prostitute is Rome. And like this woman, as she's personified as this prostitute, Rome was corrupting the world. The the power of Rome was everywhere. And they were conquering kings and kings were being forced to bow to them. And everywhere they went, they would offer protection, but you had to get protection by doing what Rome wanted you to do. And they would spread their immorality everywhere They were spreading their idolatry everywhere, and they were fiercely persecuting the people of God. So when it says this woman was drunk on the blood of God's holy people, it's like, yeah, that's what Rome was doing. Rome was delighting in crucifying Christians and burning Christians at the stake and throwing Christians to the lions. It was a sport to them to to go after the Christ followers. And so for anyone reading this in the original audience, they go, okay, we're talking about Rome. Now, that's not the only way we can look at it right now. But the warning to that early church was do not be seduced by Rome. Do not be seduced by the empire. Do not be afraid of them. Do not compromise yourself for them. Do not be allured by all of her power and all of her luxury and all of her fierceness. Just do not. Just stay away. Be faithful to the one who called you. So we've talked in Revelation about uh, there are four main schools of thought on how this book should be approached. And, and the, the nerdy term would be there are four hermeneutical schools, which just means there are four interpretive lenses for 2,000 years that Christians have used in order to read the book of Revelation to try and make some sense of it. So the first one is the futurist view. If you've grown up in church in the last 100 years, this would have been what you were taught. And the futurist view says basically that Revelation is primarily about end time stuff. It is primarily about stuff that is going to happen at the end before Jesus returns. And it's so ingrained at us that some of you are annoyed that I'm suggesting there's any other way to look at it. And so the futurist view says this is about the end times. And in that view, uh, Babylon represents the one world order, that, that something will rise up at the end where every country in the world will come into one government and one currency and, and one way of looking at things. And then the beast is the antichrist, the, the end times figure who will rise up. And there's nothing wrong with this viewpoint. It's just not the only one. But in the futurist view, the, the one world order will rise up at the end. You know, Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians that a man of lawlessness will 
will rise up before Jesus returns, who Jesus will deal with when he comes back. Jesus in Matthew 24 talks about things will get bad before the end. There will be tribulation. There will be difficulties. And so there is some biblical support for this view for sure. Um, I always just like to, to stretch our minds a little bit beyond just what we're always told because there are other ways that the church has engaged with Revelation as well. So that's the futurist view. The preterist view, we've talked about this one a lot in the series, is that Revelation primarily came as an encouragement for the early church. The early church was under persecution. There was a lot of reasons for them to give up on their faith, good reasons, real pressure. Even death was, was being threatened and was actually being executed against them. So the preterist view is that Revelation is primarily a letter written to the first century church. That doesn't mean that it doesn't still have stuff to teach us, of course, as we learn from what God spoke to them. But in that view, the, the prostitute would be Rome and the beast would be the emperor. And so the emperor and the Rome together were corrupting the world, were conquering the world, were persecuting God's people, were calling for worship to the emperor. Uh, so all of those things were really happening. So no one reading this in the first century would have said, someday down the road, there's going to be one world order and an antichrist is going to rise up. They would say, no, we're living that right now today. This is our worldview right now. So the preterist view understands Revelation as something that was for that church that certainly can still teach us as we walk through things today. Even the, there's a passage or a verse in the text today that says, uh, you know, the seven hills on which the, women sit, the woman sits. Um, and that was the name of Rome. Rome was called the city on the seven hills. And so, so all these clues are in there uh, that it definitely would have meant Rome for them. We can't avoid that. The historicist view is the view that Revelation began in the first century with seven churches. It will end with Jesus returning at the end of time. But this view says we're actually, we're living Revelation. We've been living it the whole time. It's been slowly unfolding over 2,000 years. So it's not a past tense thing. It's not a futuristic thing entirely, but we're actually living through it now and different you know, plagues and different judgments and different wars and things can all be tracked throughout history. Uh, one of the, the more common historicist views would be, uh, on our side of the church anyway, would be that the, the prostitute is the Catholic church and the beast would be the Pope. And that has been very popular in the historicist camp, especially since the Protestant Reformation. And it also just reminds us, we talked about this the week that we did the Antichrist uh, talk, is that it's really easy to interpret Revelation just with the people we don't like on the other side of whatever it is, Right? And so the Antichrist in the early church, the Antichrist was obviously the Roman emperor. And then as Muslim nations rose up later, it was obviously the Muslim kings. That was the Antichrist who was going to take over. If you remember very well, and I do during the Cold War, it was obviously the communists, the Soviets, it was Gorbachev and whoever else, they were the Antichrist. And then it's bin Laden or it's Saddam Hussein or it's, it's just whoever our enemy is at the time. It's really easy to, to make that, that person. And then uh, someone asked me after our Antichrist, Christ message, and they just said, like, I think if the Antichrist did rise up today, it's most likely they'd probably be American, right? Like, they've already got all the influence and all the wealth and all the power, and I go, well, yeah, that, that's not wrong, I guess. Um, fun to speculate as long as we don't die on these hills, right? Because at some point, someone will be right, but everyone's been wrong for 2,000 years. And so we take it with a grain of salt, and we want to make sure that we're not just looking at, through it through a very shallow lens. If me suggesting the Americans might be the Antichrist just made you angry, 
then you're not listening to the message that I'm bringing, okay? We, we need to be able to take a step back from that. And, and it certainly could be. That would not be a crazy thought at all. The final school of thought on Revelation is called the idealist view, sometimes called the spiritualist view. This view says that Revelation is not about past. It's not about future. Uh, it's not even really about ongoing. This view says Revelation is just one great metaphor, the whole thing is a metaphor about the struggle between good and evil, about how the Christ follower needs to stand against corruption, about how we should not be allured by the ways of the world. And so idealists don't typically try to figure out how is it all fits together with history and this king and that king and all that kind of stuff. They just say, this is a, a great story that could apply to us in any situation. And so if you're in the first century, then revelation is don't be corrupted by Rome. Don't bow your knee to the emperor in worship. And if you're living through the Middle Ages when Muslims nations are starting to take over. It's don't be corrupted by those empires and don't bow down to those emperors. If you're a, a devout Christian under the Nazi regime in the 30s and Hitler is taking over the world, it's don't be corrupted by Hitler, don't be corrupted by, uh, by the Nazis. Uh, if you're in you know, Afghanistan today and you're under Taliban rule, it's don't be allured, don't be corrupted. There is a message here no matter where you are and no matter what you're working through. And so while we might not be under, you know, dictatorship in the same way and persecution in the same way in Canada in the 21st century, the message to us would still be, don't be allured by Babylon. Don't be allured by the Canadian government. Don't be allured there either. And so for us, it might not be, you know, the emperor that is demanding worship to themselves, literally, like they were dealing with in the first century. For us, the warning might be, be wary of the politician's promise. Be wary of the politician's promise. And it might not be a bad thing at all in and of itself, but if, if receiving the benefits of that mean we need to compromise ourselves or it means we need to, to forget who we are a little bit in order to keep that political support, that would be the warning for us today. In a democracy, it's going to look a little different for us. So in the idealist view, the, the prostitute just represents empires in general or political power in general, maybe the world in general, and the, the beast would be any leader, any emperor, anyone who, who is rising to power. Um, you know, what we see as we go through Revelation is just the reminder over and over again that ultimately secular political power is not our main focus. That's not our main focus. It's not to say we can't be engaged, but that's not the main thing that we are to be concerned with. From there, there's a whole lot of talk about kings and thrones and crowns and an hour and power and, and all of these things. Um, you know, beast that once was and now is not and, and is again. And so for 2,000 years, I've read, you know, a hundred of these different interpretations. For 2,000 years, people have tried really neatly to put these things together, right? So, so some would say, well, those 10 kings are obviously the 10 emperors who followed Nero in the first century, or those 10 kings are these 10 European kings, and, and these seven over here are that, or it's the, you know, the communist states when the USSR first joined together because they were the godless communists. So obviously it is them. I remember I'm old enough that when the European Union was formed, some people were saying, here we go. The nations are starting to come together. But then it's like, oh, but there's 16 of them. There's not 10. So the math doesn't quite add up. And so I, I've said this to you throughout. I, I, we tend to be weirdly picky and choosy when it comes to Revelation about what we want to be literal and what we want to be symbolic. And my suggestion is we need to be consistent, however we're approaching it. And so if we're reading this chapter and we're saying this woman is obviously a symbol and the beast is obviously a symbol, 
But the kings, that's totally literal, and we got to crack the code. I just don't think that's a consistent way to approach the text. I think generally you say this is all symbolism, and I don't think we need to, to analyze too much what these kings are and who they are and how it might happen. That can be fun. I Actually, I enjoy the speculation at times. Um, but I think the main message to take away is simply this, is that there will be kings of the earth who fall under her spell. There will be rulers who fall under her spell. And, and that was happening in the first century. It happened under Hitler. It, it happens all the time. But there will be an allure that are drawn in. And I don't think we need to worry about, let's try to fit this into actual real history and see if we can crack the code of this. I don't think they would have done that in the first century when they read it. I think they would have read it in the first century and went, oh, right, all the kings around us who are falling under Roman rule. And Rome would take over a country and they might let you still be king. We see this in the gospels. King Herod is still king of Israel. Now he's kind of a puppet and he does what he's told and he can't do anything without Roman permission, but they would take over and that was kind of the deal. We will let you keep your throne as long as you bow the knee to us. And so that was happening all around the world at the time that Revelation was written. So I think the original audience would have just read it that way. All the kings of the world that we know of are falling under the spell of Rome and, and of the emperor. That's happening everywhere. So I don't think we need to go much beyond that in terms of interpretation, although have fun by all means trying to figure out and learning that you're wrong because that's probably where that ends up. So these kings are falling under Roman rule. Verse 14 says the, the, the rulers of the world will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And I just love the end of that because. Right? So these are ones who are rebelling against God. They're persecuting God's people. They'll wage war against the Lamb, which probably literally just means they are opposed to the purposes of God and they're attacking and killing and persecuting God's people. They'll wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them simply because he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. There are kings here, but they're not the king of kings. There are earthly lords. There, are, there is limited power, but he is the Lord of Lords. And so the end is not in doubt. And again, just one of the great encouragements of the book of Revelation is that he is who he is. And whatever it is we are facing, whatever the empire is doing, whatever you know, beasts are arising, whatever power things are happening in our lives, none of it ultimately matters. Jesus wins is the end of the story. He will win because he's the Lord of Lords, because he's the King of Kings. And not just that, with him. I love it. His call, chosen, faithful followers. Guys, that's us. We get to triumph because he triumphed. That a time comes when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we are in that crowd who do that willingly. Like we are the ones who, who we, we get an early start in acknowledging that and we get all the blessings that come with that. But Jesus is over every earthly king. He is over every empire. He is over every power structure. Again, the early church would have read this and went, oh, Jesus will deal with Rome. And he did. We're not Roman anymore. The empire does not exist anymore. And in the, again, the Middle Ages under Muslim oppression, Jesus will deal with that empire. And under the Nazi oppression, Jesus will deal with that empire. And if there is one world order one day, Jesus will deal with that empire. Jesus will do it. So don't be seduced or fearful. Don't be allured in by any worldly political power. Don't be sucked into the trap of, of, of the power structures of this world. The way of Jesus is totally different. 
And that's not to say that we can't be a voice. That's not to say that we can't be involved. I think we are called to be a voice to our culture. I think Anabaptists have always really valued the separation of church and state, at times probably way too much, where they just disengaged entirely and said, we're just going to avoid the world entirely. We'll just be inward focused and focused on ourselves. And that's too far the other way. So there is a role we can play, but we recognize that ultimately earthly politics are not our salvation. That is not our focus. It's just not. It's not anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in what we see, especially in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, that our main job was to take back the government and make them force Christian legislation on the world. That, that's just not there. The, the Jesus movement has a very different motivation. It's grassroots. It's person by person. It's, it's salvation by salvation. It's inward change. It's not forcing outward obedience on people. Last couple of verses Verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So this is, this is more than just one country. This is spread beyond that. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Again, just very graphic judgment language. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. So Babylon is going to self-destruct to a certain extent. Like they're, they're going to turn on each other. This partnership that has happened, that has dominated the world, isn't going to last. And that would happen of Rome. Rome would not uh, fall apart in a day. There would be a long decline. But Rome would just, there was infighting amongst the politicians. There were rebellions that began to happen. There were civil wars that were happening. Rome self-destructed. And it reminds us of stories in the Old Testament. Uh, you know the stories, if you've been around church for a while, where Israel would be facing an overwhelming army and God would promise deliverance. And the way God would deliver Israel was he'd have the army turn on itself, right? The, the same guys would go, turn against each other and kill one another. And it's like, okay, our battle's done, right? God caused them to do that and God dealt with them for us. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a good warning that to, to live in the world that these ones live in, to live in the world of idolatry and immorality and sin and, and rebellion and power and structure. Uh, ultimately, we reap what we sow, the Bible says. For better or for worse, we reap what we sow. And so Babylon will reap what it has sown. Uh, that was true of Rome. That will continually be true of anybody. And, and just interesting that he um, says they hate the prostitute, right? And we'll get into this next week in, in those chapters. But, uh, you know, they need the prostitute. They're obviously drawn to her. They are allured by her. Uh, you know, they, they partake of her, her adulteries. And yet, uh, there's not love there. There's not devotion there. There's not commitment there. They're using her. And, and hating her at the same time. And, and there's other applications to that beyond just this. But, um, but there is, it's not a sincere affection. There's not a sincere partnership going on. We are also reminded in these last verses, come on up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up. Um, we are also reminded just of, of how much God is in control of all of this, right? God is putting in their hearts to do this. God is the one who is moving the pieces around the chessboard. God is the one causing these things to happen ultimately. And he will have his purposes accomplished. He's promised that, that he will uh, fulfill everything that he wants to fulfill. And so we see this sometimes, you know, more in the American church than here, but we see, you know, don't vote for Biden. He might be the Antichrist. Don't vote for Obama. He might be the Antichrist. Don't vote for Trump. He might be the Antichrist. And it's like, yeah, don't vote for someone who, who you disagree with, obviously, but 
like our voting patterns aren't going to stop the Antichrist. If that is going to happen, and if God is purposing that, then that's going to happen. There's going to be no way around it. And nowhere does Scripture say, like, strap on your swords and rebel and, and fight for what is right. There's an acknowledgement that God is in control of all of this, and ultimately God is the one who will deal with Babylon. Ultimately, that is his job. Ultimately, he will set these things right as he has dealt with every evil empire that has ever existed. God will deal with Babylon. And our job is to, to trust in that and to rest in that. So we have called this year a year of thriving here at Meadowbrook. We picked a theme for the year. Uh, how do we thrive? Whatever we're going through. There's good times, there's bad times. How do we do that? Our model has been Paul in the book of Philippians. Paul who is sitting in chains. Paul who knows the government is going to come at some point and cut his head off. That Paul in that place said, I have learned the secret to being content no matter what I'm facing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul found his strength in Jesus even in awful, horrific circumstances. And so we've been talking about that all year. How do we thrive like that? How do we find peace like that, no matter what we're going through? Where can we find that in the Lord? So here's a few thoughts for you to mull over this week. So first one, most obviously, we will thrive when we are faithful to our covenant that we've made with Jesus, when we're faithful there. When we're not distracted, when we're not allured, when we're not giving our time to other things, when we're not giving our affection to other things, we will thrive when we are in the right relationship with Him. I think that's the only way Paul was able to say, I can be content no matter what. I do it through Him, through my communion with Him, through being filled by His Spirit. That's where I find my peace. It's not by my circumstances. Paul's circumstances were horrible. And yet he says, I found peace because of Jesus, even in the midst of these terrible circumstances. So we will thrive when our faithfulness is found there, when we are not distracted by the things of this world, when we are not allured by the things of this world, when we are not allured and seduced by political power. That's just not supposed to be our emphasis. And so when we look at our context, you know, we live in a democracy. Uh, North American democracy is very loud and very proud about democracy. Government is everywhere. It's all over our news. We talk about government all the time. We talk about government in our homes. We are always talking about politics everywhere. And I'll just throw out there for you today that that's not the kingdom that we're supposed to be obsessed with. That's not the kingdom that's supposed to have most of our attention. It's not. It's unavoidable that it would have some. But if you think of yourself, we've just come out of an election here in Canada. Uh, we've come through you know, a year and a half plus of COVID where there's lots of opinions about government and how they've conducted themselves. How much of your headspace, how much of your time, how much of your worrying, how much of your thought life, how much of your conversations, how much of your posting online, how much of that has been about worldly kingdoms versus how much of it has been about the kingdom of God? How much attention has this taken in your life? How many people have you led to Jesus in the last 18 months? We can't avoid the earthly kingdom, but that's not our, our main focus. That's not where most of our attention is supposed to go. We are supposed to be obsessed with the kingdom of heaven and the mission that he has us on. And we will thrive when we do that because earthly kingdoms are gonna rise and fall. We're gonna have friendly governments and unfriendly governments. There'll be conservatives, there'll be liberals. All of that stuff is always gonna be on. If we're putting all of the hope for our happiness, all of our hope for the success of Christianity based on a secular elected official, have we read this book ever? Right, are we even Christians at that point? Or are we just like everyone else in the world where politics are everything and that's the only thing that matters? 
And again, we certainly have a role to be a voice here. We are to declare the word of the Lord. We are to declare the will of God. We, we can be active for sure, but we are to be consumed with the kingdom of heaven. Consumed with it. Our citizenship is there first and foremost. Everything else is way down the priority list. We will thrive when we find ourselves there. The ones who are navigating COVID best are the ones who are doing that. They're, they're not even worrying about Doug Ford. They're saying, I'm going to be all about what God wants me to do. That's going to be my main focus. You thrive there. That being said, part of the lesson of Revelation is we will also thrive as our eyes are wide open. And as we are aware and, and asking questions and, and looking at government with a suspicious eye, because ultimately government is of the world. It is not of the kingdom. They're not the same thing. And so we want to be alert and we want to be aware, never fearful, but alert and aware. And then we'll find the most peace ever. And we all know this already, but we will find the most peace when we truly are able to rest in the truth that God really is in control of all things. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're not even the King of your own life you're a follower of Jesus. He's the king of your life. You're not even the Lord of your own life. He's the Lord of your life. He really is in control. He will deal with Babylon. He will set things right. Our job is to be faithful to him, to be obedient to him, to persevere through the hardship and to do what he has called us to do. And we will thrive when we do that. When that is our main focus, we will thrive. Will you stand to your feet, please, as we get ready to close? We always like to end in worship. Part of that is, is it's just a good way as we head out into our week just to fix our eyes on him one more time. It reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of who we are. So we want to worship the God who is in control of all things. And let's give him the glory that he deserves.